Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Shop Store Podcast, a podcast for woodworkers and the maker community in general. This is episode number four. My name is Robin Lewis from RobinLewisMakes.com. I'm joined by Joey Chalk from King Post Timberworks Hiya. and Jordan Crawford from Periodic Furniture Studio. Hello. We live stream the recording on YouTube every Thursday evening at 6 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time or UTC plus 10. Or you can watch or listen to it later on YouTube, iTunes or SoundCloud. I want to say hello to everyone in the chat. We'll get your comments as much as possible as we go, but feel free to chat amongst yourselves. The, the idea is that this is also a place for people to meet. We've got a couple of announcements this week. The first one is that the podcast is now officially on iTunes. We set that up last week, so you can go. There's a link in this video down below where you can go and uh, link to the iTunes store and you can get this podcast or if you're on if you're doing the whole podcasting thing already this should be coming up in your feed if you subscribe to it so we're pretty excited about that the second thing is uh, if you didn't join us last week Jordan had a bit of an accident uh, with one of his tools which was a bit of an eye-opener we all discussed it and talked about some of the safety concerns last week which was um, pretty interesting but Jordan how is the the finger doing Surprisingly well. Uh, so I've had my first round of hand therapy yesterday where I finally got to see the repair. Uh, and it's short, but not as short as it could have been. Um, <laughs> it's pretty gross underneath this. But yeah. if you want to see it, I can take it off. Um, what is that? What have you done on it? It's a cap. So I'll take the cap off. The okay. cap is just to protect me from bumping it. Right. And then this black sleeve is compression to reshape my finger because it's pretty gross. Should I should I take it off and show you guys? Or uh, I'm not sure if we should do that live. Yeah, yeah I'm I'm very I'll, interested to see, but yeah, I don't know if we should. I'll tell do you what. Live. If you want, if you guys are interested, I will do a video on my channel where Sweet. there's plenty of warning for it. But it's pretty gross. Um, but you know, I've got a lot of movement back already, which is great for second day of therapy. Um, still a long way to go, but. So is it still really sore or are you, are you feeling like you've got some feeling? Today is my first day with no strong pain meds, so no like oxycodone or anything. Um, and it's been pretty good. Uh, sorry, yesterday was. And now the only pain is when I actually touch it. Um, the most disgusting thing is that, well, I say <laughs> disgusting, it's my finger. But I have to massage the scar. Oh, and it's like the, it's not pain as such yeah, it's just it's really weird. unpleasant because you're on the tip of my finger but it feels like i'm massaging down around halfway oh, down wow. as well which is throwing me but yeah no it's going well recovery is uh gonna be you know lots of repetitive exercise but no i'm happy um high spirited anyway yeah that's good stupid <laughs> have you had that feeling now? I know obviously you've only lost a small amount of your finger, but people talk about that. Um, what's that? Phantom. Yeah, like phantom pain. Well, I don't know if that's the term. It's the one where you, like when someone's arm gets cut off, they can still feel their arm, but it's not yeah. there. Yeah, uh, especially before I had the bandage off. Ooh. I could feel Ooh. the kind of fingertip, which is no longer there. So yeah. uh Yesterday I was, so my first time it was out of the bandage and I was looking at it, I actually felt really sick um, just because I'm a pansy when it comes to... I think I would too though. <laughs> but um, now that I've had a full 24 hours to kind of get used to it, I don't have that pain anymore. Hmm. The weird the weird pain is, is it's in my elbow because of the tendon yeah, runs right. all the way up. Uh, yeah. Anyway. All I will say to everyone is don't cut your finger off. It's not worth it. It's just horrible. I'll tell you what, this week I was working on my, my jointer and <laughs> so I was so nervous the whole time. <laughs> but there was something you said in, in the, the episode last week where you noticed, as, you, as it happened, you noticed an impact. Yeah. And I know that's, that is sort of stuck in my mind because that's very descriptive. I can imagine, obviously I can't imagine, but I can get close to imagining what that impact must feel like and, and that's sort of your initial and ever since you've said that you know that it was like a, a, a massive impact that sort of really stuck with me so while i was using my joints this week last week i was nervous i mean yeah, yeah. be aware well, of it but don't do it <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i i can relate to the impact because uh when i shot myself in the forearm with my nail gun um it felt like a sledgehammer hit my arm 
Yeah, and yeah. that's all I remember is this massive whack on my arm. I dropped my nail gun. Oh, I didn't have a nail gun on that hand. I dropped whatever a big wooden beam, I think it was, and um, and then I was just like, "Holy crap! You know, what happened?" It's, it's such yeah. a weird, a weird it's, thing. It's I guess that's that's the energy. You know, whatever it is, it's that massive amount of energy that's hitting your body. So regardless of whether it's a nail going through or a blade, it just translates into impact. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. N nerves aren't used to that. So. <laughs> All right. Well, it's good to hear that you are on the mend. That's yeah. That's good to hear. I mean, it's it's only been a week. It's a week today so, or so yesterday. So yes, that's pretty good. Very positive. All right. Well, with with that in mind, um, have you been able to work on anything this week, or have you not even come close to the shop? Okay. So yes, I have been able to work on stuff, not very well. So Monday, I went in. So that countertop install from Hell last week, uh, I still had to do one piece of trim for a cabinet that yet wasn't yet installed. Uh, now that was installed. So I went into the workshop to thickness down a strip and cut a bevel on it uh, using the saw and that was quite possibly the hardest thing I've had to do with one hand because this hand at that stage wasn't wasn't able to bend because of the shock. Um, that's the only thing I've worked on so I finished that install. Other than that, I've just been working on the business which is mm. actually, I mean I hate to say it's a, a godsend having a finger cut off but it is mm. good to be forced to sit down and think about it so yeah that that's all i've really had the chance to do and recover the first first few days of this i was just out of it so not a huge amount unfortunately what about you so i have been working on it's been a pretty quiet week for me as well but i've just work, been working on chopping boards um the one chopping board is for a video which is coming out this weekend and that's it's a, a christmas present the second one is I've got a an agreement with a company over in the US where I put make videos for them for a small fee, and so it's been a while since I've been able to put these one of these videos together. Um, but yeah, I've sort of promised them a, a video, so I thought while I'm in the chopping board mood, I'll put together a, a chopping board. So my uh, workshop just smells like um, orange oil because that's what I've been finishing them with. Yeah. This, this workshop yeah. just smells amazing at the moment. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's just been it's just been two chopping boards for me this week. Are they? Sorry, sorry. I was just going to say, are they end grain or long grain or? No, no. So the they're both. Uh, it, do you do edge grain? I mean, is that different to long grain? Oh, sort of. No, it's, well, it's just how the timber looks. I suppose it will be quarter sawn or flat sawn. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah, okay, yeah. So from that from that perspective, I'll be honest, I'm not even sure which one it is. All I know is it's right. I've been using the edge of boards, um, <laughs> but yeah. So no, not end grain. That is on the list. I do want to get to that sometime, uh, but these because the one was a Christmas present. I was just trying to get it done as quick yeah, as possible. Yeah. I'm off to Adelaide tomorrow for about a week, so I had to get everything done today. Yeah. <laughs> and the that video for this company that I was talking about, it's all very. Um, beginner oriented stuff so the right. idea of doing end grain is it's just becoming too advanced yeah of course yeah, yeah. yeah that's me and you joey okay so hectic craziness um so we saw your last, yeah last weekend we moved into the, the new house so that's where i'm sitting locked away in the media room uh that there is the I was looking at those. I made that one and bought that one. <laughs> um, if you can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I've never seen a sound hole with that design. So yeah, I no, assumed yeah. it would be some custom. Uh, so, okay. So uh, what am I working on? Um, so I finished the altar. I'm delivering that tomorrow morning. Um, and on, on Instagram, I mentioned that I uh, lost the footage for it. Well, half of the footage, so I couldn't um, put the video out. I just found the footage, so I'm just editing it right now. So all things going well right after the podcast. I'm going to do the voiceover, and that video will be out. So that's good. Um, in the workshop, I smashed through this uh, outdoor lounge suite 
stuff out of my Roco. So I've got two three seaters and a single seater sofa ready for uh, for the upholstery. It's all finished, oiled. Um, I've still got another couple of pieces for that job, but probably won't get to that this year. Um, next week, I'm installing all week, every day, dropping something off, or I've got a massive install to do. So that's uh, what I'm gearing up for. So yeah, just super busy. And hope hopefully I can get my jobs finished on time so people will pay me before Christmas Day. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, everything gets held up, and I'm not looking forward to, to that. Yeah. I must say, when you said last week that you were doing an altar, in my head, I just thought that there was some like technical term for something, but I wasn't sure exactly what it was. Right. Like I didn't realize that it was actually going to be like a, an altar, like yeah. a church altar. And when I saw the yeah. picture on Instagram, I was like, oh, wow. I'd, my brain didn't even go to that. It was, I just immediately thought that it was some term that I didn't understand. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, it's yeah. it's it not a, what I would picture as an altar. Um, and to me, if you take, if, if you were to take the three little carving blocks off it, it would just be a really nice high, albeit high side table with a mm -hmm. out shelf for some reason. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's right. Yeah, I guess I didn't think of that. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, all right. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to get into tonight's topic. Uh, we've, this was Jordan's idea. So what we're going to talk about tonight are lessons uh, in the shop generally that we wish we had learned earlier on. So stuff that we'd either been doing wrong along the way and we figured out a better way to do it or um, just something that we hadn't thought about that we wish we'd thought of earlier. So Jordan, your topic, I'm gonna let you start us off with something. Okay, um, yeah, I know it was my topic, but I am a little bit, it's, it's strange because I've been doing it for so long. It's hard to think back to before <laughs> I did it the wrong way. Um, but I think for me anyway, that my biggest point of things I wish I was doing from day one is not machining my timber on the jointer and thicknesser before breaking it down to its individual parts. So when I first started out in, um, you know, just in my garage, I would take my piece of wood, if it was two meters long, three meters long, I'll joint it, I'll send it through the thicknesser, square up the edge. And, you know, I might have started with a 50 mil thick piece of wood. And now by the time it was all done, that 50 mil is down to 35 because a three meter length, it's going to have a little bit of twist. It's going to have more bow. And really, let's say that that piece had four legs coming out of it. I could have cut it to 800 mil mm. through two lengths of that, then done the same exercise and I would still have 49 mil left instead of 50. Um, it's something that seems so simple now. Back then, it was not all that obvious to me. So maybe explain it. Uh, I'd get you fully, but um, mainly it's because of, let's say, a three-meter piece. Let's say it has a 15-mil bow in it end-to-end. -end. Yeah. So basically, every time you cut a, work, a, a board down, the defects in it, as far as twist, warping, and bow, gets halved or greater than so you know over the entire length of the piece you might have like you say 15 mil of bow to it well when you cut that in the middle that 15 mil of bow is now seven or less mm. so essentially what you're doing by cutting rough cutting your parts out of the stock before machining it is getting rid of as much uh waste material beforehand mm. i guess is a way of, of wording it mm. um and you know res retaining as much thickness really uh, often it doesn't matter but if it's something that's crucial like a leg coming out i was out just gonna stock, say legs you know. is, is one of the big, big ones i do the same thing because often you're just trying to build up a big especially if you want to end up with something close to 100 by 100 or 90 by 90 you want to machine as little as possible off your 50 mil stock. Yeah, exactly. So for me, that's probably the biggest thing as well is legs. Mm. Um, generally, if you're doing it for tabletop glue-ups, you're going to machine the entire length anyway because it's a tabletop. But in times that you can, it's worth doing. Um, I don't know if you guys have anything to add to that point. I was just going to say, I'm pretty sure you've either talked about this in videos or you've done a video specifically about it 
yeah, I did a twisted video, which is basically the same concept where I talked about um, you know best way to remove twist in a board, and that was to actually rip it down the middle machine and then join it back together, which is yeah. counteractive. And that's probably where I talked about this as well. Um, well, I'm just thinking what, I, what I'll probably do then is at the end of this um, on the YouTube video, I'll put a link to that video just because I remember yeah. seeing that dinner and at the time when I watched that video, I just, my, my immediate reaction was, oh, geez, I, like, I didn't even think about that. You know, you don't, you don't think about that type of thing until it's actually shown to you physically happening and then it made total sense. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, I, I had a note here um, on the same lines, but more to do with, for me, uh, for when I'm pricing jobs, but just for anyone who is um, trying to work out how much timber they need for a job. Uh, I used to be as tight as I could. So if I needed a piece of 150 by 50, um, the thickness is never really going to change. But the width, um, the suppliers have random width boards. And so if I wanted a piece of 150, I would go and pick out like a piece of 155. So I didn't have to buy too much wastage and I, and by the time like jordan just said by the time you actually get that piece to the dimension it needs to be you're well under that 150 because there's mm -hmm. more than a five mil bow or twist in just about any piece of timber just getting the roughness off sometimes is three mil so i if i need a finished 150 i'm buying 180 minimum yeah most of the time and they've just got to charge for it and the client just has to pay for the sawdust because Otherwise, they're not getting what they need. So that's a, a massive <laughs> one. It really stresses you out if you suddenly are like five mil under your 145, oh. and then suddenly the bent, you know, the bench top or the tabletop's 10 mil, 20 mil narrower than it should be, and you're buggered. You've got to put a little strip in somewhere. And it, it does. It compiles. Like this yeah. piece might only be half a mil under dimension, yeah. but by the time you get to the end of it, yeah. the overall thing is five mil too low yeah. or, or yeah. 10 mil even. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's important, it's important to leave adequate stock. Mm. From, a, um, from a quoting perspective, you don't say to your clients, I'm going to give you a, a 150 by 150 leg, and then you hand it over to them, and they pull out the tape measure and start checking. I mean, surely if it was a 145, they wouldn't. Or is it more just from the overall design and how it builds up? Um, from, mm. You go, Jordan. <laughs> for, for me... The, I always have a, like a plus or minus variance when I'm talking to the client. So I say, you know, we do everything we can to get it to this dimension, but be prepared that it may be uh, five millimeters shorter or longer because accidents happen in that way. I've got a safety, but I always aim to say that if I'm saying this is going to be 745, it's going to be 745. Um, so, yeah, I, that's a good thing to actually write that down. I've never written anything like that down that's how i work though i've got about yeah. the same kind of um thing i guess what if i say to someone you're going to have a piece of 150 by 50 yeah it doesn't have to be that size it could be 145 or but um by the time i have to stop somewhere like i have to have a goal otherwise i could just keep machining down and and keep going and keep going so at some point i've got to say right this is my goal i'm going to go for 150 and if I'm a mill under, that's okay. But um, you know, you need to stop and say this is this is it at yeah. some point. Um, hmm. Yep. Right. Um, I guess my next point, while we're on machining side of things, uh, would be another lesson which I learned really early on with my first fairly cheap jointer was don't fight your machines and th this is universal on every machine if you feel like you're getting more resistance than you should or you're having to wrestle a workpiece to get it machined stop and reassess because obviously something's going to be wrong uh, what brought me up to this point though is actually edge jointing which is funny with my finger but when you're edge jointing all you need is the minimum amount of pressure on that fence that's required because if you're putting all your body weight into it like i did when i first got a jointer you're going to deflect that fence from 90 degrees mm. and you're going to be getting frustrated that your boards aren't coming out how you want them and it's just you, you don't need to put all your weight into a machine if if it's set up correctly and you're using it properly it should be a fairly simple task of just a little bit of pressure sending it through and you're done um 
it's, you know, like I said, it's not a huge thing, but it is something I wish I learned before destroying so many edges yeah. up <laughs> and having yeah. to have a straight edge, but I still have to rip that straight edge off on the panel saw or the table saw yeah. at that stage to have it 90 degrees. Mm. I, I've actually always put a lot of pressure that, uh, on the board to the point where I can sometimes see the, ta- the the fence bend. So that's interesting that you say that I have always done that, put a lot of pressure yeah. up against well, that, it's, that it's what you'd think. And the other thing goes with it, even when you're face jointing, if you put too much pressure on there, boards deflect. So mm. if you're putting heaps of pressure down and you've got a cup in that board, you might be flattening out that cup, but when you take the pressure off, it springs back. It springs back. So it's mm. got to be minimum amount of pressure for all those sorts of jointing tasks because you don't want to deflect that wood as well. Yeah. I was always taught, let the tool do the work. And so mm. that was mainly when I was learning first how to use a handsaw. Yeah. Let the saw do the work. Don't put your shoulder and all that into it. Don't force if the blade or the saw is jamming, it's because you're pushing it too hard. So um, it's a, and then really that rule goes for all in power tools as well. Just let the tool do all the hard work. Um, there are a few exceptions like this week I had when I was cutting the Iroko, uh, which is, I think I mentioned earlier, notoriously bad at moving after it's cut. Mm. And so I'm trying to rip some pieces on the table saw and if I tell you, if I didn't have the riving knife and I'd be shot across the room, um, the stuff is pinching so badly that I actually had to use all my effort just to keep pushing the timber through. And eventually it pinched on itself and got part around the riving knife and then I could carry on through. Um, but yeah, generally you don't want to be uh, pushing at all, really. Mm. This week I've been on the, the jigsaw and that was one of the first tools that I really work that out with the forcing it is as soon as you put too much pressure on that jigsaw you end up with the that most big drift yeah. the drift and the deflection is terrible and yeah that's you've just got to you've got to take your time and let the, the tool do everything yeah yeah no, totally. uh, talking about the joiner i want to jump in then and add one of my points because i also had a jointer one as yep. well the the jointer in my mind was always such a like you get the jointer when you're at a specific level of woodworking or you are trying to mill your own um you know raw rough timber i didn't realize how important a, a jointer was for a glue up now i mean i'm pretty sure that you can get into it with a hand plane and, and learn the skills and techniques with using a hand plane but i just not, I don't want to say I don't have the time for that, but like that's not a priority for me. When I got my first jointer, the the, the setting up the knives was always a, a bit of a, a, a fear for me because everyone says it's this long job and it takes forever. I got my first jointer having never even touched a jointer before, set the blade the blades up first time. Uh, I mean, they're, they're probably not accurate to the, 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 the thousandth or whatever they talk about, but mm. it's, pretty, it's, it's good enough. But the... It, the difference that it's had on my glue-ups has been astronomical. From from what I've figured out from that machine, I would say if you want to do glue-ups, you need to try and get yourself a jointer as quickly as possible because it is so much more than just a way of of milling rough mm. sawn timber. Well, that's it's a joinery machine. Mm. It's the vital yeah. part for joinery. So you really have to think of a joiner as just a giant hand plane upside down with a motor on it. Yes, yeah. that's, that's what you're doing cuts fingers off yeah but you, you always see it as like a big machine and for me the cabinet machines as someone who's still working his way into having a, a full workshop setup cabinet machines are the next step it's, it's you know it's moving away from power tools and going to the next step so i've always seen it as that type of tool that you need mm. to be at the next level but it, it really shouldn't if if you want to do you know glue ups and, and and tables and coffee tables and that type of thing that should be just as important as, in my opinion, and maybe I'm blowing it out of proportion because I'm so impressed with how it works, but that should be as important as your your drill and your circular saw, in my opinion. I agree. I mean, I agree and I disagree. It, it, I agree to the point that it will make your life so much easier and increase your productivity, but you don't need it to just do simple tasks, but when you want to get into that next level of having you know, tight glue joints, 
and have accurate layout because you've got a square edge to reference off of and all of those sorts of things. It's To me, it's vital. Uh, but you can always buy your wood, which is squared up pretty close, and get away with it. But if you have the means, I would totally recommend it as one of your early machine purchases mm. for sure. Yeah, that's true, I guess. Yeah, so if you just buy your, all your lumber dimensional, then you would hope that you shouldn't have to worry about that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can get away without it, but I... I've, I, I've, totally I've, I've made a solid timber kitchen carcass out of pine and I just bought dressed four-side boards and just straight off the shelf glued them together. Works Putty fine. does wonderful things. Yeah, um, you just twist it into any shape you want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. So I guess, yeah, as long as you can get your hands on some dimensional you know, dimensional lumber, like I guess, yeah, for, for me, it's been working with the, the uh, reclaimed Jarrah. It's just yeah. been, it's been um, paramount for that. And, and that is one thing that I'll say that a lot of people will complain that we haven't got materials available to us in Australia. And I mean, I disagree with that because it is everywhere, but mostly it's salvaged wood. So if you're wanting to get your hands on free or cheap wood, like, you know, old roof rafters or pallet wood, mm -hmm. even having a jointer means that mm -hmm. you have access to all this wood that otherwise would have been unusable. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Um, yeah. I think for me anyway, that's probably everything machine, machining-wise. Do you guys have any other machine sort of um, points? I don't. Joey, if you do. I actually found this really difficult to come up with a load of things because I know I've got tons of them. But, actually, but it's hard to remember actually them, right? remembering. And I, yeah. all week I was thinking, oh, is this a lesson? Is this a lesson? Like, um, so nothing on machines as such. Uh, uh, maybe the only lesson that I can think of right now on machines is get if you if you've got a decent saw or um, some stuff, tools that are going to make a lot of dust and you're ready to buy a dust extractor, put just spend the money on decent ducting. Like that's, don't that's the point don't I have. go for um, corrugated you know flexi hose just for the the little parts that need it. When I upgraded to a steel pipe, one fifty mil smooth bore um it upgraded the suction on my saw like 10 times to the point now i can actually hear the air sucking into the pipe at my <laughs> table saw this just sounds like a you know funnel of air coming, and that's what you want and that catches every last bit of dust and you won't get clogs up and, and all that kind of stuff so that is um you mm. just got to set it up otherwise the machine I did some maths on it, something like every meter of corrugated uh, hose, you lose 10% of suction. Yeah. That, so, you're, you're talking just that flexible, semi-transparent. Yeah. 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 Um, to add on to your point, I had a dust collection point, which is very similar, uh, but it's don't scrimp on it because if you're trying to save money in the early stages of your dust collection by you know, using crappy pipe, or having less suction than ideal. Or going for shop vacs instead of proper or going for shop vacs. <laughs> to me anyway, it is being my biggest expense is my dust collection because I started with little units which weren't big enough. I knew they weren't big enough, but I've spent so much money over the last two years trying to get it right when if I had just spent the money to get, get it right to begin with, mm. I would have been way happier. Because for me anyway, if my if I have dust all over my shop. I find it really hard to work. Mm. I, I can I can deal with clutter, but when there's a film of dust on everything, it's, it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> um, you know, and that uh, yeah. I have a dusty shop and a cluttered shop sometimes, but um, it's way not as dusty as it could be if my my extractor wasn't working properly. Yeah, like I've I've got a video hopefully coming out anyway about my dust collection because I've. Right. Finally bought myself a big three-phase collector a while ago, but it's old, so the bags on it were really clogged up. Right. Uh, and I was I was making do with it, and I just said that I can get the bags for 150 bucks. I'll do it, and it's improved the suction by easily. I, I'd say better than 100% improvement. Is that new bags, or have you put the cartridge filter type? Just bags. Um, yeah. The the cartridge filters for that size. 
weren't because it's so old the bore of the drum yeah I've had I couldn't, I couldn't find it yeah I um, upgraded to ca the cartridge filters which again improved the suction probably on my machine probably another 40 percent mm. um, and they're just awesome that's just yeah brilliant I, I see Cuffy's just jumped in there um, my dust extraction sucks in the bad way <laughs> uh, <laughs> after a day my throat is burning that was for me I uh, was working with Jarrah in my nose. I could feel that burn, and that was something that I picked up straight away. Um, I don't own a big, uh, a big unit, the the proper three phase. What Jordan was talking about, and all the shops that I've ever worked in leading up to this point have all been sort of half open under carports, that kind of thing. And it was only right. when I shut myself into a a sealed room, started cutting, did I realize just how much sawdust actually comes out if you don't have. Oh yeah. And since then, now I'm sort of now I'm scrambling to put something together because I didn't realize just how bad it is. And and as what Kaffi was saying, I, I did a couple of um, boards of of Jarra through the thickness planer, and I just had to walk out for the next mm. hour to wait for everything mm. to settle because it's you can't just sort of breathe through it. And even your dust masks are just they're yeah. just and it's not enough. And especially um, with Jarra, it's just yeah. so fine. Robin, uh, assumably you don't have a shop vac yet. Well, have you got a little a vacuum? Yeah, I've got one of the little 38 mil. Um, yeah, so I, guess I was going to say, uh, you just said about Jordan's three-phase um, um, extractor. Now, you don't need three phases, the big the big boys, and mine's three-phase. You don't need that big. No. You can buy for the same price as a, um, a shop vac, like a vacuum cleaner. You can buy a, a dust extractor with a 100 mil bore on it. Um, smaller bags, but you way more suction and way yeah. more way more storage in the bag than a, a vacuum anyway. It's high volume, low pressure, and yeah, all that. And then a shop vac's high pressure, low volume, and it's mm. so a lot of people have, have said to me there was a a a, a vacuum by the uh, was full bore. I think you've got the full bore drill press, Jordan. Yeah, yeah. So Bunnings had a full bore proper shop vac yeah i know the one you're talking about um, selling it now so the next one that i was looking at is jet make a um an, a unit which is obviously a bit dearer because it's it's jet but i think it's about 600 700 which really isn't that bad i um, it's about taking that step yeah i mean i've had a lot of dust collectors uh my so I started with a similar full bore one, that the same design anyway, just rebranded. It was a Hafco one. And I would say that if you see yourself getting more than two tools that you want to use it on, go the next level up. So the one with a an actual blower. Mm. But I would say the the Hair and Forbes mach, uh, machinery house, Hair and Forbes that is, those units are actually pretty good. They're a little bit loud. They're not quite as polished and well off as the Carbotech unit I had was but you're getting a three-way port on the actual nozzle so you can hook it up directly into three machines if you wanted to uh, i'd suggest going solid pipe to the machines and all of that for efficiency but you could do it uh, and the price they come up with every now and again is less than 500 bucks for a two-bag mm -hmm. collector i mean if you weren't in adelaide i have a spare one sitting in my shop i'll i'll totally send it to you but it's, <laughs> yeah. oh, in townsville even but townsville yeah yeah but uh, something tells me freight is not going to like that. No. <laughs> yeah, and you know it's going to go down along the coast the whole way as well. So it's not even. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but, but it is. Um, uh, dust collection has been a is yeah. It's. I, I wish I wasn't behind. I wish I'd kept up with it because now yeah, it's a disaster. I would suggest because it's always going to be the way. If you're looking at it for your first time, go a minimum of twelve hundred cfm because that rating will half after the bags get clogged. Yeah. So if it's, if you're looking at the smaller 700 CFM units, you're really getting like 400 after a while. So by going 1200 or 1600, you're actually going to have some decent suction even after a long time of using it. Yeah, and I guess the other thing to think about, well, I know we're getting onto extraction now, but it's not the topic. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, if you just use the standard filter bags, um, they only go down to maybe one micron of dust and so if so the air that's coming out through that filter is still coming out dust laden 
Mm. And if you're, you've got your dust extractor sitting in the corner of your workshop, you're just filling the workshop with the fine dust you can't see, which is what you shouldn't be breathing. Um, so ideally, you want your extractor to be sitting outside if you can waggle that or get uh, replace uh, get replacement filters that are down to um, kind of under a micro uh, under half a micron ideally yeah okay yeah that's yeah. interesting mm. um, yeah maybe this should be a, a topic for the future yeah, it's a whole topic Joey did you have anything um, yeah okay so the example I'm going to give is about dovetails, but I, I think everyone will be able to extrapolate this. So when I started cutting much very, very fine pins, dove, dovetails, um, I didn't really give any thought to how I was actually going to make the pin, cut the pin hole uh, that's such a fine needle point. And so what, by the time I, because I would cut my tails first, uh, and I'm then scribing this tiny pin, slot and my chisel is four mil and the 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 small smallest chisel i have is four mil and the pin slot is like two and a half mil and so there's no way that's happening so the lesson there is um make grooves uh, rebates dados in the same multiples as your other tools that you are going to use to clean that out so um it's pretty standard probably for a lot of us metric guys. So if you're you cutting an 18 mil groove for supply wood, you're probably going to have an 18 mil chisel. Um, that's not necessarily so though, but um, think about that when you are buying tools, it, is that if I'm going to need to cut an 18 mil groove and I need to buy an 18 mil router bit, I should probably check if I've got an 18 mil chisel or anything else that is going to mm. um, need. So, uh, when I make, um, anytime I do like a frame and panel for doors, if it's veneered or even if it's painted, uh, I always buy six mil, um, sheet goods, either plywood or MDF. And I know I've got a six and a half mil cutter, um, and that slides in perfectly. And so it's just a matter of having these kind of systems, I think, in place where you know that this tool works well for this, uh, process um otherwise you really get stuck if you don't have, have the tool that fits in the hole <laughs> so to speak yeah that's very true one of the the best investments i made was buying a 19 mil router bit because now yeah. whenever i need to put a, a, a table frame together that's what my rails you know going to and it was something yeah. it was so it was so simple that, that you know i just didn't think about it at the time when i bought my mm. router and then I, I looked through all the sizes and of course that's why you have a 19 mil router bit because it's made because all the timber comes in 90 mil. So yeah, standard. try and get all your, yeah, all your sizes to work out with, well, all your tool sizes to work out with your timber. Yeah. 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 Otherwise, especially if you're doing super custom things when you're not using sheet goods, say you're making a frame and panel door and you're doing a raised panel, timber panel. Um, some, so sometimes you'll make the panel first, which is sometimes a good idea. Um, and if you just make the tongue on that raised panel a random size, um, and then you've got to try and make that gr that same groove in the door styles, you know, it's a real bugger. Say you need, say you've got like 16 mil, which is a router bit size I have, but um, you might have to then get say a small not nine mil router bit and make two passes, and that's just always a bugger to set up the other side of the the groove. So uh, yeah, that's definitely quicker to, to go in bit sizes or cutter sizes. Yeah, yeah. I'm ashamed to say I've, I've done that too many times of <laughs> yeah. size it, but not actually be able to size it. Yeah. 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 But I didn't learn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, Robin, anything? Uh, well, the one that I was uh, mentioning this morning on Facebook, um, and this is, I guess it's a bit of a broader, a bit of a broader topic. When I was starting out, I didn't realize, I mean, I, I knew about milling timber to get it as square as possible, but I hadn't yet worked out what needed to be square. So a lot of the time, um, well, for myself anyway, I was trying to get everything perfectly square. Now, an example of where you don't need that, in one of the recent bills that I did, that Jarrah table, 
you've got a, a leg which was 40 by 40, 750 or 760 long. If that timber isn't perfectly flat, probably not going to notice. You could have a five mil, um, you know, twist or uh, sort of uh, curve. You're probably never going to notice that. But anywhere that you're joining timber, you need it to be perfect. So that's sort of separating where things need to be square and where things, yeah, they need to be close to square. For me, that was a real big thing to, to work out what was and wasn't okay. And I remember um, Jimmy DeResta once saying, if it looks square, then it is square. Or sorry, if it looks straight, then it is straight. It's, mm. That's a very old saying. <laughs> yeah. and, yeah. I, and I think you've got to take it with a grain of salt because obviously if you can do everything square, well, that's perfect. But do you yeah. want to spend two hours trying to get a, a leg straight when really no one's going to notice it and yeah. you could be you know, putting your time into something else? Yeah, no, I, I agree with, uh, with that. If it looks flat, it is flat. I mean, I have to remind myself that on every dining table I make because wood moves, it will cup, it will do. I mean, you know, I've learned, which is another lesson, that if you're not working on your tabletop that's glued up, cover it with a sheet so it minimizes the amount of movement. But if, if it looks like it's got a little bit of cup coming into it, well, guess what? The base will take that out of it if you Hopefully. brace it correctly yeah, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I don't, I don't really get my ruler out, my straight edge, and check it to be dead flat that often it has to be damn close for me to yeah. pass it off but if it's not dead flat if it feels it it's fine yeah well, my rule of thumb is for tables if, if you put a plate on it and it rocks around that's not, not good enough out. yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm talking really minimal amount of yeah uh, yeah yeah, yeah. Out of um robin i yeah i fully agree with you but even more so that uh, um, and I've thought at this for a long time, and it was nicely confirmed to me reading the article in Mortison Tenon magazine about this very thing, was you only need two square reference faces, uh, and it usually, and say, let's say the um, aprons of a table, you're only going to see one side of that. Um, and the other side can be still have bark on it for all I care. Mm. It doesn't matter what the inside of it looks like. And now there are schools of thought where furniture makers try and make every face pristinely perfect. Now, I absolutely don't fall into that category. When I was touring through Europe, you know, I was sticking my camera under every piece of furniture I could <laughs> find. And, and um, in the most prestigious um, castles and, and buildings, you might have gold leaf and all sorts of filigree on the outside and underneath. You still see chisel marks, plain marks, just terrible, like rough sawn timber. And on the outside, it's like this super veneered, mm -hmm. you know, Bombay chest or whatever. And, you know, if that's good enough for the old masters, then that's bloody well good enough for me. So I'm not going to spend half my day trying to make the inside of a chest of drawers look beautiful. It's just not, there's no point to it. No. Yeah. It's the exact same method of you have your witness lines so you, you know which faces you reference off the entire time. It's the old school mark out routine. Yeah. Those two faces are the show faces. Mm. And I, I think there's also a bit of merit in, in the idea that it is handmade and not to say that you can just be slack about everything, but it is handmade. It hasn't come out of a, an industrial machine. Mm -hmm. So your little nicks here and there, if you end up being the next fantastic, you know, world-class designer, people are going to look at that and go, oh, that was his genius coming out. Whereas now you look at it and you're saying, what's well, because I suck as a woodworker. So it just depends how you want to showcase that, those little Yeah, um, I think Jordan will probably have a slightly different opinion w yeah, with me in that um, it's when you're making a piece for yourself, you can do that. There's a, there's a point where... I've certainly had clients say, oh, you haven't finished that, that piece. And I'm like, no, no, that's like the bottom of the thing. You're never going to see it. Oh, well, you know, that's not good enough. And so clients definitely have an expectation to a point. Um, some clients are sweet. They don't, yeah. they don't care about it. Others will, will go, hey, uh, how come you haven't? Um, you know, done this, and I, I always say, well, do you look at the bottom of your kitchen bench top? 
like does it i bet it's not got anything on it i bet it's just raw mdf but yeah. um yeah it's definitely uh, there's a there's a point to where the roughness needs to kind of be filtered out i think it's for, for me and my furniture anyway i think it's fine to have tool marks hidden tool marks but i always make it look presentable like mm. it's always if i finish the top i finish the bottom if mm. it, like it may be three coats on the top and only one on the bottom but it's a thick coat on the bottom yeah, yeah that yeah. sort of stuff so it always looks right but tool marks and stuff i i always leave you know if there's a dent on the underside or chisel mark that is still there i to me it doesn't matter and my clients have never complained but i think i finish everything way too much than i have to mm. yeah all right uh, do you guys have any others that you want to i go have got one thing that i could be interesting um which is finishing because i know that i spray most of my finishes it's a lacquer spray and joe you mostly use oils and rob you use a lot of varnishes um so a, a big trick because i'm not a polisher i mean you know i did at uni i did one class with an actual professional <laughs> polisher and that was it but one thing i wish i learned way earlier because i would have saved myself a lot of effort mm -hmm. is keep the puddle wet when you're spraying a finish so for me, that means that if I'm going to be finishing a big top, which is, you know, let's say a meter and a half wide, don't spray from the middle out because it gets easier and then go to the other side and pick up from the middle and come out. You need to keep that puddle wet so the finish actually melts into itself. So start on the edge, work toward the middle, then walk around to the other side of that top and pick it up from the middle. Keeping that wet edge is going to make your finish look so much better and you know you always have to finish a finish but sometimes if it's most of the time now i would just take it off the gun that's it finished mm. um, and that wasn't the case for the longest of time because i wasn't keeping the puddle wet yeah that's pretty much the the rule of thumb i think for all finishes is you've got to be keep working that wet edge mm. um, yeah um i yeah, absolutely agree. I mean, just to clarify, I actually I started using oil finishes, and I was getting awesome results. Oh, sorry, you mean like Danish oil, don't you, Jordan? Yeah, yeah. So right, I'll, yeah. I'll so like. that's yeah. I I would do fifty fifty depending on what clients want. Um, I started doing like oil based polyurethane finishes, and I did it an old school way where you mix it down like. 50 50 with turps so it's really watered down and you just rub it on with your hands like with gloved hands like massage the 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 liquid into the the, the timber um it's and, it's like the candles and the the scented yeah. oils <laughs> and uh, and you kind of let it pull a little bit and then after a couple of minutes wipe it off three hmm. four four three or four of those and you've got the glass finish the problem is that it takes so long to dry and you're gonna have dust in it it's not great so I pretty well probably in the last year I've changed over to just about solely water-based finished I was gonna say you're always using water-based aren't yeah. you yeah and uh, you know I can get three coats on in a day the, the heat we've got at the moment the problem is now yeah, it's so hot that I can't keep a wet edge which was um, I was gonna, it's exactly what I was going to ask you about, yeah. Joe, because I can't, and maybe we should keep this as you know, yeah, a whole separate topic. Yeah. But yeah, that's my problem with the the water base is yeah. I know you use the pad, but if yeah. you try to do a tabletop with a brush, forget about it. No, the uh, first coat is going to be the problem. Any any way you, you look at it, I think. Um, you, what were you going to say, Jordan? I mean, you can get good results off a brush, but you got to spend a lot yeah. of time. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was going to mention this, and I, I thought I wouldn't, but I will. In that, uh, so I just did this really large dining table top, um, and I used Danish oil. But I don't think it really matters what it what the finish is. When the timber is raw, it's going to soak up every last little piece of moisture that you give it. So if you are reaching over and you a drop lands on the tabletop and you don't see it. And then you come to it and oh there's a drop i'll just you know wipe over the drop that drop you'll never get rid of that round little ring mm -hmm. where it's a darker spot 
Yeah. And that is incredibly hard to finish a tabletop, a large tabletop. When the finish is drying before you can come back to it, you're going to get overlap marks and streaks. Mm -hmm. uh, you really need a second person there to help get it on as quickly as possible. After the first coat, it doesn't really matter. You, you can take your time. You're not going to have that right, same okay. issue. With, mm. um, but, but getting that first coat on evenly is definitely uh, a trick if it's a large thing. Yeah. All right. What I thought we could do now is go to some of the questions. I just see because we are running yep. a bit short of time. So Bill Manson had a question earlier. So he said, hi, lads. If I build the outdoor table out of Jarrah, is there any reason I can't laminate a solid top and route some draining slots on it? Or do I have to have individual boards on top? So I guess he's saying, um, and Bill, if you're still there, if you can chime in from an expansion perspective. Do yes. solid tops work outdoors? I'm going to say no. Uh, mainly because if you have a dead flat surface, the, the water is just not going to uh, drain off it for a start. I mean, if you just have a decking board, the water sits on it until it evaporates. It doesn't just leak off. Um, yeah, and we, yeah, carry on, Jordan. I'd, I'd be on the no wagon too. I would keep it kind of separate because there's so much, so much movement outside. Yeah. My question, I suppose, would be, I mean, let's say you did it. I don't know how you would fix it to the base to allow for enough expansion and to hold it flat. Mm. I'm not sure. I can think of one very difficult way, like a, a very long a series sliding. of sliding dovetails, yeah. but the tabletop's going to have to be at least 50 mil thick. And how you attach you'd have to have a series of dovetails along the the top and it's just going to turn into a major problem to get it on <laughs> now, you can do whatever you want but i wouldn't suggest it surely from the perspective of you talk about the moisture sitting on it on a dead flat surface if it's out in the sun which i guess mm. kind of may negate the you know the benefits but surely then it's just it's going to evaporate I mean, the wood's not yeah. just the wood's not just going to sit on there, especially if you've got a decent finish on it. Yeah, but my example was certainly here at least. Uh, if it's rained and there's water on on a deck, um, the water doesn't just go away. It takes quite a while. It's, it might take uh, four hours for it to evaporate off the um, off the deck. And is yeah. is that water doing damage to the timber while it's well, sitting? Not in the timber. It's on top of the finish. I think it would be damage to the finish. Mm. Yeah, okay, fair enough, yeah. The other thing I would be worried about with a solid top outside, especially here, is those glue joints failing. Like, mm. you know, there's so much more movement outside that over time I don't think that solid top would remain solid for that long. Even if a glue says it's fully waterproof and all of that, it's either going to be brittle because of UV damage or something. I just don't see it lasting all that long. Yeah. Yeah. I think... Yeah, um, I think even epoxy would would could have problems. Yeah, I mean UV and epoxy are enemies. So mm. I mean, obviously it's sealed between two boards, but it'll still mm. somehow it can, it can in, get yeah. destroyed on that that top edge. I've seen it actually on um, yeah. on public things where the, the the wood actually is rotting each side of the epoxy. I've seen, and then there's mm. a little strip of epoxy left. Um, for so for whatever reason the water sits there must be a little dip on the join yeah and water will sit right there and um, the epoxy is left but yeah and the, the timber kind of gets eaten away either side so. hmm. Hmm. here's one for you Joey mm -hmm. from Fabian what's the best woodworking shop in New Zealand what's that <laughs> what's a I woodworking guess, shop well um, I was gonna say it might be King Post Timberworks isn't it yeah um that we have a carpetech they have good stuff and not so good stuff but mm -hmm. um like they have a very good range of hand planes it's quite good and they go from very cheap to very expensive and so that is probably i'd say the only place you should be buying any kind of hand tools that are worth you know if you really want a decent um, and want to spend the money um, 
there's lots of machinery shops, but geez, you don't really want to think you want to get down that road. Um, otherwise, I actually find I'm buying a lot of stuff direct from the States um, because in the end, it's cheaper. Just don't buy over $400 worth in one go. Otherwise, you'll have, you'll have to pay GST and it gets held at customs and they don't tell you about it and it's sitting there for three months and then, uh, yeah, it's not good. Um, all right, uh, what are we on? Let's let's do one more question. Um, this is from Gareth. You made a point earlier about one of his lessons, so that's why I just want to mention it. A huge lesson for me was take the time to make a jig instead of freehanding. So mitre jigs, tapered leg jig, bevel jigs. Um, yeah, so I guess the idea is um, create the jig, obviously, if you can use it more than once in the build or, you know, in the future. So that's good but um this helped me with was my miter saw was using a stop block instead of measuring and i mean i know that sounds pretty straightforward but when i first started everything was measured and cut and then i saw a video on youtube once about using a stop block and my mind just exploded because it was just <laughs> so much better so yeah I, I i totally agree with you gareth it's it's very true but to your question uh jordan joey what reason Apparently, I don't use resin, <laughs> but it's, it's fair enough. I don't actually know enough about resin. Um, what resin do you recommend and where do you get it and the colored pigments or so? Uh, well, mine's easy because I only use one resin, which is the West Systems Epoxy. Uh, they have two hardeners. I think it's 205 and 206 from the top of my head, but there's a fast and a slow. I have all, yeah. all of it on stock at every time. I get it in a four-liter pump bottle. Uh, and the pigment I use is also the West Systems Black. Uh, they have little squeezy bottles for everything. And where I get it from is Fiberglass and Resin Sales. Uh, that's a shop here in Perth, but it's basically, it's really making its way into any boating shop at the moment as well, I found. Uh, the one reason I use that, that resin over everything else is because it's what I started using when I first started and it works and it works really well. It's not that I think it's better than anything. Um, it's just a good unit. And with all the fillers and things I add, you can mix it up to be really thin. So if you're doing just, you know, wanting to seal something up, that's fine. But you can also mix it up to be kind of like clag glue, if that's a universal glue, I'm not sure. But wallpaper glue. Um, and then you can have it pretty thick. It's self-supporting on joints while you're gluing it up. It feels stuff like that that's my answer <laughs> yeah i use mainly international um epoxy and international make a whole lot of boat resins and glues and stuff it's, a, it's a, essentially the same as the west systems i um so the international stuff is i can actually get it from guthrie baron which is a paint shop here um and i can get west systems from there as well um i buy the four liter pump uh, version as well so you, you have a i think one pump of resin to one pump of hardener mm -hmm. um, um it's expensive as heck here i'm not sure what you pay jordan but if i'm going to buy a four liter of resin it's about 280 bucks oh wow okay that's yeah, yeah. i mean that so I, I spend probably 200 for resin hardener and pumps right that's pretty good yeah yeah uh, that, um, that is the trade price so i shouldn't have said that out loud <laughs> yeah. um, so if you're in New Zealand you can pretty much get those resins in any hardware store I think even Mitre 10 have it on in, on the shelf my trick for um, pigments so if I want black I, I have bought a container of black oxide and that is used for coloring concrete and they mm. make a bunch of different colors it's about $10 for a liter jar and you will never run out of it i mean you only need a few specks of it to change the mm. color of resin uh, it's very good at changing the glue colors um, i use it all the time on, on walnut i'll change resin to black um, or any any glue to black if i if i don't want to if i've got issues with glue lines and stuff um, but i guess my best trick for coloring resins is to use the sawdust of the timber you're using um, so if you can, I, I, I find it difficult to catch my uh, sanding dust now because I have it hooked up to a vacuum. But if you just have your sander hooked up to the little the bag that comes on the orbital sanders, collect that dust, 
add that into the epoxy and it will go exactly the same color as the timber and you won't have issues with uh if you want a clear look unless you want a black yeah. look use on the on the sawdust well, on two notes actually on the sawdust front i've always been told by the supplier that you shouldn't use sawdust if it's for like structural but it's fine for filling yeah. um I, I don't know how true it is it's just a supplier so yeah make, to me that sounds that. like them saying don't do that but buy my filler but it, yeah. exactly and covering there but yeah. but just make it apparent but the other uh, pigment which i know a lot of people use is this is just for black is um artist charcoal ground yeah. up really fine and you know not just a small teaspoon of that mm. not even a teaspoon is enough to make it black completely um so that's another good kind of cheap pigment for it yeah it's a good idea i didn't actually realize that you could use the oxide powder in epoxy i just assumed that it was own because i've used it before for concrete but i didn't know that you could use it in in glues well oxide is just a natural pigment coloring so yeah. um and use such a tiny amount seriously like Jordan just said a teaspoon of charcoal, which is way, you know, that would do 10 liters almost. Yeah, that yeah. would do a bucket load. Like yeah. you, you don't need any. And so the, the tiny amount that you're adding to the chemical mixture is just about, um, you know, negligent. I see uh, Mark has just said that uh, West, I assume you mean West system, sell carbon dust. So clearly it's a, mm. uh, yeah, it might, it's a thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because, yeah, I've still got some mine left over from when I did my um, concrete countertop. So I should right. just start using that because right. I've yep. always used the dye, the the, um, the pigments. Right. But that's because that's metho, um, I don't know what you call it, metho, methylated spirits based. Uh, okay. Can't really use it in a water based glue. It's just going to separate. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Try. <laughs> just mix really, really vigorously. <laughs> yeah cool all right um so what have you guys been watching recently um well i'll start there's a, a guy that i've been watching for quite a while his name's wes hamster he is a canadian woodworker he's got very cool videos they're very clean um the whole design process all of that is is fantastic and it was Probably about a month ago, he released, I only saw it the other day, it, I, just, I must have just missed it, but I saw it the other day, he made a mid-century modern inspired coffee table, and we've, you know, we've seen a few of those before, but there was a couple of the joinery methods that he used that I thought were quite um, clever, uh, and now they're, they're on the, more on the, um, the novice side of things, and, and ways. I hope you don't mind me saying that, because it's nothing too fancy, it's not some of those Japanese types of joints, but for someone like myself watching that, I got so much out of it because because of the, the way he filmed it and what he showed. But yeah, um, Wes puts out a, a fair few videos. He's, um, yeah, he's, he's, he's a, in my opinion, a really good channel to watch if you are trying to learn some, um, mm. some new tricks. So yeah, Wes Hamstra. Cool. Um, I've got two, well, I've got three, but only two that are still active. Um, this is one I was binge watching for the first few days of my recovery, and that was Engel's Coach Shop. So really awesome channel of a coach builder, just either restoring uh, old you know, coaches or making them from scratch. And he does everything from the woodworking and the forging and the everything. It's, it's awesome um, just to watch a master do his craft. Uh, so that's the one I've been binge watching. The other one which I found, but he's no longer active on YouTube, but good to go check him out, is Simon uh, Heslop, H-E-S-H-E-S-L-O-P. Um, I think he's UK-based by the accent, mm. and he just makes a lot of his own machines and stuff. Um, and I, I just really got into it. Cool. And then one that, Rob, you just reminded me of by saying Japanese is Ishanti Furniture. Yeah, I've seen a few incredible, yeah, just amazing woodworking videos. Nothing, no words, no nothing, just yeah, just good work. Calm. Yep. Yeah. Um, I really haven't had much time for watching because I've been moving house, but I um have been getting on a bit of a blacksmithing buzz lately. So, um, I've been obviously watching a lot of Alex Steele, but um, 
I stumbled across, I say stumbled across, apparently 8 million people already know about the King of Random. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I was watching some of his forging videos. Um, yeah, just kind of, uh, what's he just does, uh, he's not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. He's just showing you all his mistakes and everything. And I thought it was pretty cool stuff. That uh, the one that he makes the forge in the bucket, which doubles yeah. as a pot plant. That's, uh, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, I watched That's a really bunch cool. of them actually just, uh, at lunchtime today watching him try to forge a copper gear and it's just having all sorts of problems yes. with it. So. I've seen I've seen that one, yeah. Um, speaking of, one last thing, speaking of the, the move, uh, Joey, how did it go? Are you all in settled, everything? Yeah, pretty good. Um, we've still got a few boxes around. I've still got to make a whole lot of shelving bookcases and a desk and all sorts of stuff and a dining table and chairs and um, lots of things, but otherwise we're pretty much in and I have internet, which is good. <laughs> yeah yeah that's cool that's cool yeah i hope we get to hear the story of that uh was that guitar behind you the one that you told when was yeah. it in the foot okay yeah yeah that's the guitar that's like the first thing i made mm. uh when i was just halfway through chemo or something like that yep mm. cool all right uh well that about sums it up guys um thanks very much to all the uh, people in the chat, thank you very much for all the people who um, asked some questions. That's really, um, that's some of them were pretty good. What what we might do is next week uh, we will we'll run the show and then at the end we'll sort of say, does anyone have any questions? Just so we can keep them all grouped together in case we yeah. miss any. We don't want to we don't want to miss any. So thank you to everyone who um, yeah asked a question. Um, other than that is, uh, yep, there's no other questions. That's perfect. All right, guys. Well, thanks very much for tuning in. As I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, we will have this out on iTunes. So if you do want to listen to it on podcast, you can. And if there's anything more from Jordan, Joey. All good. All good for me. Cool. All right, guys. Well, thanks very much. Enjoy your weekend and we will see you next week. See you. Thanks, guys. <laughs>